God is good. All the time. I want to welcome you. Uh, what a joy. Those of you that are up front, just look behind you at how many folks there are here tonight. Just wave at everybody. Those of you online, wave at us. We are one big community. We are joined uh, by this wonderful gift God has given us called Christ Church. This year, our focus at Christ Church has been inviting others to church. So our focus for October has been wearing some Christchurch gear. We've got that in the bookstore, and it's all kinds of price points and all those kind of things, but it's just based on what you wear, what you're comfortable with. And the idea is to wear it out and around, and when people ask, you either get a conversation going, hand them a card, invite people to church. Next year, our focus is going to be sharing your faith. Yeah. I did a survey uh, a couple years back, two-thirds of people are more comfortable inviting someone to church than they are sharing their faith. So I thought, well, we better start with inviting people to church, and we'll work up to it. A big part of sharing your faith is being able to tell your story. And one of the things that I think a lot about as we kind of enter fall, as we get a little closer to the holidays, if you've ever joined a family... You know, maybe you're married into a family or something like If you've ever joined a family, part of the way you become one with that family is by hearing their stories. Those are the gifts that people share. At Thanksgiving, it's not just turkey. It's stories. It includes you. You become a part of that story. So telling the story of what Christ has done in our lives is a very, very powerful thing. And it's something that shouldn't just be told once, it should be told over and over. In a, in a week and a day from today, we've got a group of pastors who are going to come in from all over the region, and we're going to talk about ministry and how the world's changed since COVID. Our theme is deep and wide. How do you go deep in the word and still grow? We're going to do that. But one of the things I'm going to be sharing with them is the Christchurch story. And that's the story since the pandemic. Because it, it sort of changed everything. I want to tell you a little bit of that story. And maybe if you're new to Christ Church, it's becoming part of this family. Christ United Methodist Church was founded in 1953. Relocated to our present location in 1996 under the leadership of the late Bill Cooper. I arrived in the summer of 97 at the ripe old age of 35. 35. Didn't take long to see that God wanted to do something special here. Have you ever walked into something good? I just, it just didn't take long to see God wanted to do something special here. But I have already learned, just because God wants to do something special doesn't at all mean something special is going to happen. It just doesn't at all mean that. Well, I just got this feeling. I'd walked into something God wanted to do. Well, I got to tell you, nothing was easy. Nothing was easy. But the Holy Spirit was moving in undeniable ways. And it seemed like the, the revival fire just started burning, and it just kept burning and burning and burning. From 97 until 2018, we grew in worship attendance here from 200 each week to over 2,400 each week. 
We witnessed 1,600 formal professions of faith. We celebrated 1,200 baptisms, invested about $14 million in expansion and capital improvements. We added a gym, a new sanctuary, three-story state-of-the-art children's wing. We had several renovations, including this chapel and some campus locations. We soon became the largest United Methodist Church in Illinois, then one of the fastest growing United Methodist churches in the country, and eventually one of the largest United Methodist churches in the nation. We were awarded every church growth and evangelism award by our former conference from the time we built the new sanctuary until our disaffiliation. We were recognized in 2018 as one of the fastest growing churches of any kind in America by Outreach Magazine. But I remember when we were informed that we had been recognized as one of the fastest growing churches in America. I remember saying to Alan Press, this is really interesting because God is going to choose to honor this congregation. But I got to tell you, dude, I feel the winds changing. You ever just felt the winds changing? You remember the old country song? I can't see a single storm cloud in the sky, but I sure can smell the rain. Man, that's where I was. I could just smell the rain. You could feel the temperature dropping. You could see the storm clouds blowing in. Our denomination was imploding. The country had grown highly polarized. Our financial partner housing our substantial debt was in transition. Frank Scott Parkway was scheduled for a year of construction. And the culture, fueled by cable news and social media, was jaggedly shifting. All cultures need a hero and a villain. And more and more orthodox, traditional Christians became the villains. Well, our bank leadership did indeed turn over. And all of a sudden, we needed a new financial partner willing to take a risk on a church with a multi-million dollar debt who was disaffiliating from its denomination. Frank Scott Parkway was barely navigable for a year, and the specially called General Conference of our denomination that was held in St. Louis to deal with matters of human sexuality resulted in us losing people who disagreed with our orthodox biblical interpretation and traditional stances. I suppose we made the mistake of failing to change with the times, and when all was said and done, we lost about 10% of our people and about 10% of our resources, and it hurt. It just hurt. In 2019, our 22-year growth streak was snapped. I felt like a major league pitcher who had won 20 games a year for 21 years, and all of a sudden I woke up one day and I was 9 and 18. It just snapped. And all of a sudden, both Christ Church and its senior pastor, of whom I was quite fond, <laughs> took a beating on social media. And somehow, in some way, we and other traditional Christians in this country, by virtue of the fact we failed to change with the culture, were labeled haters. Well, Praise God, right about the time we started to recover, 
I heard a word for the first time, coronavirus. First time I heard it, I said, how dangerous could a virus be named after a Mexican beer? <laughs> then they changed it to COVID, and we found out it could be pretty serious indeed. It shut down live worship here for 18 weeks. 18 weeks, this place was a ghost town. First week, I stayed home because they told us not to come back. And then I, I thought, I, I can't do it anymore. So all 18 weeks, I woke up every day and I took a shower. And I put on work clothes. And I came here by myself every single day. And on Sundays, when we were showing worship services that we all got together and recorded at some point during the week against every rule in the world. Uh, on Sundays, I would sit in the sanctuary by myself and I would watch the worship services on my phone. And some Sundays I just cried. I just cried. When we decided to reopen before like almost anybody in America... I kind of braced for the onslaught of negative publicity from social media and the press. I could just see the headlines declaring Christchurch, the traditional Christians to be super spreaders. It just seemed like the kind of thing that would make every demon in Satan buy around. Right? Every demon in hell just buy around. We're going to take another pound in. And then the second we got back, we decided it was time to formally disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church, even though there was no real path to do it. And we had no idea what lay ahead. None. What we did know was because of a legal thing called a trust clause, there was no guarantee we'd keep our building. Storm clouds were just banked up in every direction. The rain pelted, the thunder rolled, the lightning struck. There really didn't seem to be a chance in the world we'd survive here. I mean, not really. And then I remember one day, I just, just got before the Lord. And I said, Lord, what are we to do? What am I to do? And I just got a single word. Stand. Stand. In the worst of it all, you can still choose to stand. And we stood. And I made some real clear decisions by taking that stand. We will not live in fear of what could happen at Christ Church. We will not defend ourselves against the slander of Satan and those who work for him. We will not run, we will not hide, and we will not back down from the good news of Jesus Christ. Stand. We will... We will stand on our Christian convictions. We will stand on the historic Christian faith. We will stand on the promises of God. And we will stand on God's word. And I decided at that moment, we will either survive or we won't. But we won't back down. We will not back down. We will not quit the field in the heat of battle. So guess what we did? We stood. Guess what you did? You stood. You stood. We stood together. And Satan gave it everything he had. And we stood. And then God sent others to join us in standing. 
We found out that when you stand, there's other people that's been waiting to stand. When you stand, there's been other people waiting their whole life to believe in something enough to stand. And so many of you joined us in standing, and look what God has done. Look what God has done at Christ Church. We've not only survived, we have recovered. We've not only recovered, we have moved to new heights in ministry. And even as we enter a renovation campaign to outfit this facility for the future, I can declare to you that our future at Christ Church looks brighter than ever. So let me make a declaration, if I may. I want to declare right here and now, in the presence of this company and everyone who hears my voice, God is faithful. We can firmly stand upon the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness during the storms of life is something that Paul knew better than anyone. And a message that he felt compelled to share with the church at Colossae. So our thesis for tonight, and you say, man, we we read three verses, three whole verses. Are we going to cover them all? Not a chance. We can't get that far in one night. But our thesis for tonight is that we can stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. My word to you tonight is no matter what is going on in your life, you can stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. The Colossians had come to believe that in addition to faith in Christ, there was a lot of extra stuff you needed to know to be a Christian. And Paul countered, folks, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And Jesus is the only person you need to know. So last week, we explored five extraordinary claims about Jesus. We're going to hit them real quickly, and then we're going to press on down the trail to get to two more. So let's look at our claims last week. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God with skin. It's what Israel always wanted, God with skin. Number two, Jesus was the catalyst of creation. Jesus always was. He just always was. He didn't just show up out of nowhere for Christmas appearances. He, he always was. Number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. All authority. He said, all authority has been given to me. All authority on heaven and in earth has been given to Jesus. Number four, Jesus is the head of the church. And we are his body. So I'm going to be real clear about this. If Jesus isn't the head of the church, it's not a church. It might be a charity, might be an organization, might be a club, but it ain't a church if Jesus isn't the head of it. And then number five, Jesus reconciles us with God. It's the work of Christ and not the law or special knowledge that squares us up with God. Jesus squares us up with God, and Jesus is all we need. In the Sermon on the Mount, which I've been preaching on Sundays... Jesus shockingly proclaimed, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And this had to be really daunting, coming from a guy who seemed to break the rules and regulations of religion every chance he got. The law of Moses was God's gift to humanity to make a way possible for our fallen race to be in relationship with God. Paul is saying the Ten Commandments were great, but they weren't the whole of the plan. They simply built upon the promise that God made to Abraham. And now Jesus says, 
I have come and I was sent by God to finish what Abraham started. I was sent by God to finish what Moses started. I'm not here to abolish the law. I am here to fulfill it. God's plan of salvation was made complete in Christ. So if you look at the Old Testament, it's under construction. You say, why is the Old Testament so horrible? Because it's under construction. But it is all completed in Christ. Christ is what got the work done. God's plan was made complete in Christ. Now, the problem in Colossae was they had an increasingly skewed view of the plan. And getting the church refocused on Christ alone is really the purpose of Paul's writing. And that's really part of my call that I feel now. You know, I've, I've got a call to be the pastor here, but God has also given me an opportunity to have a voice of some measure beyond here. And one of the things I feel really called to do is to say to the church, we need to get back to Jesus. We need to get back to Jesus. I wrote a book called That's Good News. It was published in February and the only reason I wrote the books because God pinged my heart to do it. But the message of the book was, church, aren't you tired of fighting? Aren't you tired of the drama? Aren't you tired of the distraction? Let's get back to Jesus. Let's get back to evangelism. Let's get back to inviting people to church. Let's get back to sharing our faith. Let's get back to Jesus. And Paul is saying to the church at Colossae, let's get back to Jesus. So... We're going to do a little bit more theology. No need to thank me. Claim number six. Jesus makes us holy and blameless before God. Verse 21. This includes you who were once far from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. We were born into sin. We didn't choose sin per se. We were born into it. Sort of like fish are born into water. I remember being rhetorically asked when I was a child in Sunday school, what do you have to do to go to hell? And by instinct, we would say something really bad, right? Something really atrocious, because hell is clearly for despicable people. But that wasn't the right answer at all. The right answer is nothing. Nothing. Just be born. And live your life and do the best you can and try to be good or not and then die and you'll go straight to hell. This is what they were working with when we were seven. <laughs> Tended to stick. We start our lives on the wrong side of the ball. And unless something changes, we will spend eternity apart from God. That is the condition our condition is in. We enter this world estranged from God. And with every wicked thought we feed, or every wicked act we commit, the chasm between us and God just gets wider and wider and wider. It starts bad and it gets worse. To be saved, we have to do something. To be saved, we have to choose something. Or more accurately, we have to choose someone. Jesus came to bridge chasm that exists between us and God. Verse 22, 
Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Salvation comes at the initiative of God. This is really important, and I want you to understand this. Theologically speaking, we don't find God nearly as much as God finds us. So what was God's plan for reconciling the estrangement produced by the fall? Jesus. Abraham, Moses, Jesus finishes the thing. In the same sense, it was God who made first contact with Abraham. God who literally wrote the Ten Commandments and etched them into stone and gave them to Moses. This is the same God who has given us the opportunity to be made right with him through Christ. Paul is addressing an errant theological construct that we're going to find really alien to our teaching. It was called Gnosticism. And I have read and read and read about Gnosticism, and I want to give you my thoughts on it. Are you ready? No matter how hard I try, we'll never quite understand it, and even if we do, it doesn't help us much. All right? So when this becomes a trail guide, I can't tell you how disappointing this is going to be to all the Gnostic fans out there. But I'm just not going to deal much with Gnosticism. Some, though, were teaching in Colossae, these tenets of Gnosticism. They were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully human because Gnostics believe that all matter was evil. So your flesh is evil. So if Jesus was in the flesh, he could not possibly have been a human. We're not going to get into all this because it's a pit with no bottom. But in contrast to Gnostic thinking, Paul established that Jesus, though fully God, was also fully human. This is a really important piece for them. Jesus was fully human and Jesus was fully God. Simply put, it was Jesus' humanity that paid the price for our sin and Christ's divinity that reconciles us to God. Paul reinforces what theologians call substitutional atonement, which simply means in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus died in our place. We each deserve eternal death because of our sin. It was a price that had to be paid in full. Paul wrote, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the temple, animals were sacrificed to reconcile the people with God through the shedding of blood. It was part of the plan. It wasn't a whole plan. It was a step in the plan. But by virtue of his crucifixion, Jesus not only offered the sacrifice through the shedding of his blood, he also died the death that we all deserve. Jesus died in our place. And he did it once and for all. He did it once and for all. He didn't have to die over and over and over. He did it once and for all. Then he writes, as a result, he has brought you into his own presence And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I'm going to read that one more time because that's staggering. As a result of what? Him dying. He has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I know what you're thinking. Who, me? Right? If I said to you, everyone here who's holy and blameless, please stand up. 
you know, everybody be looking around, right? But we are declared, because Christ has brought us to him, we are declared to be holy and blameless. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has given us an opportunity to be right with God. Now, we're going to have to act on that. We're going to have to invite Christ into our heart, but we've been given an opportunity to be made right with God for eternity. So here's what I need you to hear. We can't get to God without Jesus. It doesn't matter what you know. doesn't matter how good you think you are. We can't get to God without Jesus. Nothing we could possibly know, nothing we could ever do will make us right with God. Only Jesus can. When we receive Christ, he brings us to himself for the purpose of delivering us to God. I want you to think about it. He brings us to himself for the purpose of delivering us to God. You remember earlier in this series, we talked about a rescue, what it means to be rescued. To effect a rescue, some things are required. First of all, someone has to be in peril. Did you know you can't rescue somebody that's not in peril? You can annoy them, but you can't rescue them. So somebody needs to be in peril. Then someone has to secure them and then deliver them to safety. Those have to happen in a rescue. At the very moment a lost person is secured, not just located, secured by the rescuer, the moment they are brought into the presence of the rescuer, they are officially reclassified. They were lost, now they are found. They are not found until they are in the possession of the rescuer. They will surely be delivered to safety once they are in the possession of the rescuer. Not because they know how to get back. They have no idea how to get back. Ergo, they were lost. You see, there's nothing a lost person can do to deserve to be rescued. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I'm more peevish. Does anybody else find that? Things just annoy me. And one of the things that really annoy me is that when people do dumb stuff and then taxpayers have to spend millions of dollars to rescue them, it annoys me. It just annoys me. Why is it costing me money? Because you're dumb. That annoys me. I've just got to be real transparent. You know, if somebody gets lost, did you know there's nothing they can do to deserve to be rescued? Salvation comes solely at the initiative of the rescuer. Somebody's lost, and then somebody chooses or not <laughs> to effect a rescue. There's nothing we can do to deserve the gift of salvation. We just have to receive it. And once we are saved, we are no longer classified as condemned. We are reclassified. We now stand in the righteousness of the Christ who saved us. When I was a kid, I sometimes wondered why God didn't just beam us up to heaven the second we were saved. Because in my childish understanding, the purpose of salvation was not to go to hell. Was anybody else raised in a tradition where everybody got saved so you wouldn't go to hell, right? And so the purpose of salvation was not to go to hell. So I often wondered, you know, why doesn't God, the second you receive Christ, why doesn't God just beam you up? 
you're done. You won't backslide, you know, things will go up. Boom, boom, you've kind of peaked right there. Uh, and then I thought, I know what I was saved from as a kid. But it was only much later that I began to understand what I was saved to. Some of you know what you were saved from, but you've yet to discover what you're saved to. Paul pushes beyond the from to suggest what we are saved to. So what are we saved to? The end game of salvation is to one day stand before God holy, blameless, and without fault. That's the end game. That's how this ends well. Let's take a look at the, let's take a look at the terms. Holy. Holy. Holiness is a life fully aligned with the character of God. It's not just being saved. It's living in a way that always has us moving closer to Jesus. Holy means set apart for a special purpose. And that special purpose is to be God's own possession. You are God's. Used to be Satan's. You accepted Jesus. Now you're God's. You have been reclassified. You used to be headed to hell. Now you are headed to heaven. You have been reclassified. It's interesting to me that in English, the antonym of holy is obscene. But in Greek, the antonym of holy is ordinary. So the opposite of holy would be ordinary. If you have... I remember when I was young, when people got married, they used to get them china. You guys, dishes. People used to get people dishes. And then they like put them in cabinets called china cabinets. And then they'd use them twice in their whole lives. <laughs> china was to be used on special occasions. You didn't use china every day. In fact, you didn't use china at all. It was for special occasions. The opposite of china would be our everyday dishes. Those were the ones that my mom bought with green stamps. And you broke them all the time. And they just got more. That was ordinary stuff. Well, we've been reclassified from ordinary to holy. You're not an ordinary person. You're holy. You are set apart for God's special purpose. So I think the first thing we have to understand as Christians is that we are not like everybody else. And you say, well, doesn't that feel a little awkward sometimes? That's why we have to hang out together more. <laughs> I'm serious. Right? One of my favorite Delbert McClinton songs is Crazy Like Me. It's just kind of good to know that other people are crazy like you. And so when we come to church, there's a lot of us. Right? Different shapes, different sizes, different varieties, you know, but we're all Jesus folks. There's more of us. There's a lot of us. That's awesome. We're not like everybody else. You are God's special possession. You are anything but ordinary. So may I offer a prophetic word? Stop trying to be ordinary. Stop trying to fit in. It's a loser's play. It's a loser's play. Why would a piece of fine china want to be sold for green stamps? Stop trying to fit in. You're extraordinary. And then we're to be blameless. 
Blameless is interesting because blameless really is about reputation. Think about it. It's about reputation. It's, it's who people think we are. So holy people will be of good reputation. And we will be of such good reputation that not even the slanders of Satan will sully our reputation. You say, well, if, if I'm truly blameless, I won't get accused. Read the Bible, people. You know, I have people come up to me, you know, I'm trying to serve Jesus, but things are so hard. Read the stinking Bible. Read the Bible. That's the one thing Jesus promised us. If you follow me, people are going to hate you. If you follow me, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. So get over it. It's going to be worth it, but it's going to be hard. Read the Bible. You're going to be slandered. Satan's going to do everything he can to take you down. Satan did everything he could to take Christ's church down. And you know what? Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies, and he's defeated in Jesus' name. And at some point, you got to tell him that yourself. There's absolutely nothing wrong with telling the devil to go to hell. Nothing wrong. Faultless. Faultless is about character. It's about character. It's who we truly are. And maybe just as importantly, what we're in the process of becoming. The old Methodists spoke of this as going on to perfection. You say, well, I thought you weren't a Methodist anymore. My friends, I will always be a Methodist. I am not a part of the United Methodist denomination, but I'll always be a Methodist. They called it going on to perfection. And to understand this, in fact, when I got ordained, I was asked by a bishop, are you going on to perfection? And, sure. (laughs) To understand this, we really have to get our heads around the Greek here. The Greek word translated perfect is teleos. Teleos in Greek does not mean what it means in English. Perfect in English means perfect. Flawless, without blemish. If you have a perfect diamond, then that is a diamond that is flawless. It's it's without blemish. So when we think perfect, we think flawless. That is not what teleos means. Teleos, the word translated perfect in Greek, means fully mature. So a perfect young bird, a perfect chick, would be a fully mature bird. Teleos also means to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. So imagine I had a coffee mug, which as it turns out, I do. And imagine that it, it got bumped around a little bit, had a couple chips out of it, you know? It's just beat up a little bit. Imagine that. And you look at my coffee mug and you're thinking, wow, that's not a thing of beauty or art, but you know what? As long as it holds coffee, as long as it doesn't cut my lip when I drink it, as long as it, it isn't cracked, it is still Teleos. It's perfect. It fulfills the purpose for which it was created. We will never be flawless on this side of eternity. We'll never be flawless. But we can mature into perfectly fine Christian people. So I would just kind of like to put that goal out there. Why don't we become perfectly fine Christian people? Why don't we fulfill the purpose in our lives for which we were created? Why don't you find a ministry? Discover what you do 
Invest in that. Just fulfill that purpose. Are you a new Christian? Praise God. Become a mature Christian. Become a mature Christian. Become everything God created you to be. So what's the end game? To stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. Now the beginning. And I got to tell you, I've been really excited about the beginning all day. I have been. I've been excited about it all day. You, you, ever, you ever told a joke that was so funny you started laughing as you were telling it and you couldn't quite get through the joke? That's how I felt all day today. Uh, just, just about this ending. So I need you to lean in for, for the last two minutes of this because this is awesome. All right? Do you ever wonder what God sees when God looks at you? Do you ever wonder what God sees when God looks at you? I think this is the most important question that almost no one ever talks about. Often, we assume that God sees us like we see us. We assume that God sees every mistake we've made in our past, that God remembers every time we've stumbled and fallen, that God holds our doubts against us. And when God looks at us, he sort of sees disappointments with feet. This conceptualization is a lie of the devil. It's a lie of the devil but it often goes unchallenged in a fallen world. I challenge that conceptualization. I challenge that conceptualization. The reality is we are always prone to think the worst about ourselves. And we naturally project that image on God. Because I feel bad about me, God must feel bad about me too. Paul's claim to the church at Colossae is revolutionary. It's utterly revolutionary. When God sees us, he does not see our former lostness. He sees our current foundness. When God sees us, he does not see how lost we were. He sees the Savior who rescued us because of the forgiveness that Jesus has made possible. We can stand before God, holy and blameless and without fault. How? Because our rescuer is holy and blameless and without fault. Are you getting this? Because I'm only gonna say it one more time. God doesn't see the lost soul you used to be. He sees Jesus. 